Professor Hugo Dobson received his PhD from the School of East Asian Studies at the University of Sheffield in 1998, where today he's a professor of Japan's international relations. His research mainly focuses on two broad aspects Japan's role in international relations and the role of images shaping our understanding of international relations and Japan's role in the world. Before, He has worked as a research fellow in the International Center for Comparative Law and Politics at the University of Tokyo and lectured in the international relations of East Asia in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Kent. He has been the recipient of several research grants and has been invited to teach and research at various institutions around the world, including the University of Tokyo, Hosei University in Tokyo, Zurich University, and Charles University in Prague. Also, Professor Dobbs is heavily involved in the Global Learning Opportunities in the Social Sciences, short GLOSS, program within the Faculty of Social Sciences of the University of Sheffield, which aims to promote student engagement in global learning and provide students with unique opportunities to understand their courses in an international context. Just recently, he returned from the G7 Summit in Charlevoix, Canada, where he accompanied several student policy analysts. Today, we are glad to welcome him here to Bentabur to talk about Japan's role at international summits such as the G7 or the G20. Welcome to Bento Biro, the podcast about social political issues in Japan from an international perspective. My name is Bastian Hart, and today I'm going to be your host. With me is Buzz. Hello. Hazel. Hello. And also Long in the background. But today we have a very special guest with us who I would love to introduce, and I'm honored to have him here Professor Hugo Dobson. Professor Dobson, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank um, you I, very much for the invitation. I highly appreciate it. We would like to ask you a couple of questions about Japan's role at international summits, particularly focusing on the G20 uh, and the G8 slash G7, which you have just joined uh, last weekend. And if you don't mind, we would just start with a couple of questions um, regarding your interest in Japan. So, yeah, sure, go ahead. Fantastic. So I would like to know, how did you develop your interest in Japanese international relations?、Uh, that's a very good question. And there's probably two answers to that.、Um, one answer is that I was influenced by my father, who was an artist, and he collected Japanese hangar. So when I was a small child, I'd be running around the house and we would have hangar hanging on the wall. Now, I think in Britain, often people just think that China is Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I sort of grew up with an idea that there was this place called Japan,、uh, as represented by these pictures. So I don't know how influential that was, but there was certainly that sort of thing going on in my head when, when I was growing up. The other reason I got interested in Japan is to do with sibling rivalry. So my brother is six years older than I am,、mm-hmm. and we were always very competitive growing up. Um, always competitive about school and grades and things like that.、Um, and eventually, when I got to go to university, he got to go to Japan on a,、uh, a Ministry of Education scholarship. 
So um, he kept coming back from Japan with stories and photos and gadgets and gizmos, which were fascinating to me. Uh, and I was at university studying history and politics. So one year there was a optional module on Japanese politics. And I thought, well, why not take it? You know, it could be quite interesting. So my interest really grew from that. So, you know, it, it was it was a very random uh, reason that I got interested in Japan. Um, and slowly I got interested in doing a PhD, um, but I didn't have the Japanese language and realised that if you needed if you're going to do a PhD in the future, no one's going to take you seriously if you don't have the language under your belt. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky enough to get a scholarship through the Daiwa Anglo-Japanese Foundation. Uh, and that gave me two years to study the language, get it up to about level two of the Japanese language proficiency test. Mm -hmm. And then I came here to Sheffield in 1995 to start doing my PhD with Professor Glenn Hook. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of random way in which I sort of slowly got... I was always interested in studying and research, um, but Japan was a little bit more random in mm -hmm. terms of how I got interested in it. Mm -hmm. And could you tell our listeners what kind of research you're doing right now in Japan? Sure, yeah. So I guess my ongoing research is all about global summitry. So particularly the G7 summit or the G20 summit. Uh, and Japan's role in those summits. Um, and I've been doing that for quite some time now. Um, I've also started attending these summits. So my first ever summit was 2008, 10 years ago now, when Japan was hosting the Toyako Summit in Hokkaido. Um, I applied for media accreditation, was able to go to the summit, work in the media center, attend press conferences by some of the leaders, um, and this just got me more and more interested in the process of global symmetry. So that's been an ongoing project. Uh, at the same time, I'm getting interested, well, I've been publishing in a number of other areas. So a few weeks ago, I published an article about former Japanese prime ministers. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what do they do after they retire? Right. You know, we all remember Koizumi, mm -hmm. but what happened after he stepped down from power? You know, did he still, well, he didn't have power but he still had influence. Mm -hmm. And how did he try to use that influence? So there's an article just published in the Journal of Contemporary Asia with Professor Caroline Rose at Leeds University, and we've worked together on this project. Um, so, yeah, there's a few sort of sideline projects that I'm interested in, but the main overarching project is global symmetry. I would like to ask one more question in regards of your research because I sure. kind of found it very interesting. And even though it goes off topic a little bit, I think our listeners would be quite fascinated about it. Yeah, sure. The role of images. Could you explain a little bit how that relates to Japan's role in the world? Yeah, good question, right? So, yeah, this is the sort of side of my research, which is more like a hobby, if you like. Um, and it's taken a number of forms. So... A number of years ago, I did a project about postage stamps, right? So a postage stamp is um, a political document, right? It's approved by a government. It goes through a process of negotiation. Uh, it's projecting an image to the outside world or domestically that a government wants to promote. Um, and I got interested in this subject. I'm not a stamp collector, I should mention. But I got interested in this subject when I was at Tokyo University as a PhD student, a visiting PhD student. And I was working in the international office. 
and it was uh, during the time that there was a standoff between the Clinton administration and Saddam Hussein. Um, a letter came from Iraq, and the stamp on the letter had a picture of Saddam Hussein in a heart with, we love you, Saddam. We say yes, Saddam. <laughs> and I just thought this was a very overt example of politics playing out on the face of a postage stamp. Mm -hmm. So this got me interested in, you know, what are the images that are chosen? Why are they chosen? So I looked at British postage stamps, my own country, and saw a whole range of politically uh, motivated postage stamps. Then I started looking at Japan as well. Uh, and, you know, a number of interesting stories emerged behind the image that you might see on a postage stamp. So you, you consume this image without even thinking about it. Um, and subliminally, there's a whole political narrative that you're consuming uh, at the same time. So th that's been one element of looking at images. Um, the other element has been um, a project which hasn't quite got off the ground yet, but goes back to my interest in global symmetry. And that's to do with logos. Mm -hmm. So if you look at all these G7, G8 summits, you know, they've all got logos attached to them. Now, why does an international forum like the G7 or the G20 or even a more institutionalised body like the World Bank or the IMF or the UN, why do they need logos? What are they trying to brand? What are they trying to sell? What are they trying to market? So it's looking at these logos and trying to deconstruct the image to sort of see what are the elements within the image how do they use text alongside symbols and what kind of image are they trying to promote to the outside world? Mm -hmm. um, as I say, that's a project that's been going on for quite some time now um, and I've just not had the time to really get to grips with it. Mm -hmm. So this is like my hobby kind of research uh, mm -hmm. when I'm not looking at global summits. So um, before we proceed with any further details, thank you, Professor, for the lovely introduction. Um, just to familiarize our listeners, could you explain what are international summits such as the G7 and G20 and, and what is the role of international summit in the global scene today? Okay, uh, thanks for that, Hazel. So probably the best way of answering that question is to look back at when the G7 summits began in 1975. Um, at that time, um, the leading economies of the world were facing a number of uh, crises. Uh, there was uh, the oil shock that happened in the early 70s. Um, there were a whole number of macroeconomic issues that needed to be dealt with. And the leaders of the major economies at that time felt that they needed a new kind of forum to try and come to collective decisions to deal with these problems. So they decided that they were going to have an informal summit. It was going to be getting the leaders of the right countries around the table to have an informal chat. So it's like the idea of having a fireside chat. Leaders would, no record would be made of the meeting. Leaders would just be talking to each other very frankly um, and they would come to some kind of consensus at the end of the meeting. Now, it was meant to be a one-off in 1975 when a G6 met, um, but they actually found the forum to be really useful. So they replicated it the following year and then it slowly grew organically. Um, it grew to include other issues, political issues, as well as economic issues. It grew in membership, so Canada joined, uh, the EU joined, eventually Russia joined in 1998. But the main thing has been that it's, uh, it's an informal gathering. 
uh, of, of like-minded leaders. Now, the next important date to take, keep in mind is 2008, because 2008 was the year that the global financial crisis hit and everybody criticised the G8, as it was then, um, for not responding to the crisis appropriately. And the proposal, which had been on the table for some time, was to upgrade the G8 to a G20, to expand the membership to include uh, developing countries. Uh, so that's where China got involved. That's where India, all the BRICS countries, got invited to an expanded G20 summit. So since 2008, you've had a G7 and you've had a G20 running in tandem with each other. But the G20 is very similar to the G7. It's an informal gathering. It has no legal right to exist. It has no formal headquarters, uh, no organisation, no flag. It's not like the United Nations, which has some weight behind its decisions. These are informal gatherings where leaders can still come to some kind of uh, consensus on an issue. Uh, so the role is very much, I've described it in the past as plate spinning. These summits are there to sort of keep the more formal mechanisms of global governance functioning, whether it's the IMF or the World Bank or the World Trade Organization or the UN. They're not there to do the job for these organizations. They're just there to uh, keep the conversation going and um, ensure that uh, issues are being dealt with in an appropriate way. Would I, uh, would I guess right, or could I ask the question? Yeah. Since this international summit is in order to find an international consent <clears throat> under the um, seven slash eight members um, of, the, of the summit, does it actually matter? Because America now decided to um, literally withdraw their signature from the communique, uh, which was published after the summit. Sure. Yeah, we're, we're, we're entering interesting times, right? Because, yeah, a few days ago uh, in Quebec, and I was there with some students from the University of Sheffield working in the media centre. Uh, we sat there and listened to Justin Trudeau's press conference, and our immediate reaction was relief that the G7 had agreed on a communique. The rumours that were circulating was that there was going to be two different communiques. There was going to be one for the G6, the other countries minus America, um, and there would be one for the whole of the, whole of the G7. Uh, now, in the end, um, there was, as I say, this tangible relief that they've come to an agreement and Justin Trudeau could claim uh, a diplomatic victory. Um, whilst we were watching that, clearly Donald Trump was on Air Force One starting to write tweets saying how meek and mild Justin Trudeau was being and how he was being dishonest and uh, was going to withdraw uh, America's consent to the communique. So, yeah, we're, in, we're entering really interesting times. Um, for the G7, it's not the first time it's been here. I mean, people have questioned its legitimacy since the first time it met. You know, why do these leaders of these countries have the right to meet and make decisions on behalf of the rest of the world? Um, so on the one hand, you get that kind of narrative that, you know, this is an Ill illegitimate body, it's informal, it doesn't have any legal right to exist, it has very little legitimacy. Um, and at the same time, you get people saying it's also ineffective. Um, you know, what can they actually do? It's just a talking shop, essentially. Mm -hmm. Now, I would suggest that a talking shop is actually a valid thing in its own right. 
it's better that these countries are actually meeting and having a conversation than not doing it. So there is an importance in, in, in that uh, regard. But also you can point to times when the G7, uh, the G20 as well, have had concrete uh, outcomes. So one example would be the 2000 Okinawa summit. So Japan was hosting the Okinawa summit in 2000 at the G8. And one of the big outcomes of that was the creation of a global health fund. Now, the Global Health Fund has, it is now a separate body and has functioned effectively uh, and has, you know, dealing with infectious diseases, has saved millions of lives. Now, this was an initiative that the G8 came up with. Um, sometimes the G8 will make decisions and it's very difficult to trace it back to the G8 because people will say, oh, no, what a success the Global Health Fund has been. But it actually goes back to an initiative of the G8. So you can point to concrete outcomes like that, as well as just the value of these leaders meeting on a regular basis anyway. So I generally think it's a good thing that these summits take place. But I do think they need to think about the costs associated with this, the level to which they engage with civil society groups and get their legitimacy that way as well. Um, and also finding a way in which they function and sit next to each other, because no one's still quite has figured out how the G7 is going to operate next to the G20. Now, it might be that what we're going to see is a G6 plus one, but at the same time, a G19 plus one. Because in Hamburg last year, yes. America wasn't really engaging <laughs> with the G20 conversations as well. So um, this is all to play out. I mean, it's very, very interesting. And, you know, we'll see what happens. But it's not the first time that the G7 has had an existential crisis. Mm -hmm. It might be the worst one. We shall see, but it's not the first one. It, uh, the recent summit of the G7 definitely brought some interesting happenings, uh, that, that's for sure. But uh, I would like to know, in your opinion, what do summits such as the G7 and G20, what do they mean to Japan? Okay, I think each of those means different things. I think the G7 and the G20 mean different things to Japan. Um, I mean, the G7 was originally hugely important to Japan back in 1975. Uh, when they met in the suburbs of Paris for the first time, because Japan was invited. Japan was recognised as a great power of the day, right? This is the country that had been excluded from the United Nations. This is the country that, you know, second largest contributor to the United Nations budget, but denied a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. The G7 recognised that Japan was an important player uh, and, and, and embraced it. So Japan responded to that very positively, uh, and it's really regarded its role within the G7 uh, as an important aspect of its international relations. Um, you know, in some ways, Japan takes the G7 more seriously than a lot of other countries. Um, I think, you know, Japan's more like Canada in a way. You know, it really sort of regards that multilateral aspect of its international relations as hugely important. At the same time, Japan has used these organisations to pursue its national interest. So if you look at Koizumi, uh, during the Koizumi period, he was very eager to ensure that issues like the abduction issue with North Korea was written into G7 summit statements. Now, you could argue that has nothing to do with the G7. That's not within its remit. But Japan was going out to ensure that this, this bilateral issue was getting the endorsement of the international community. Japan did the same with the territorial dispute over the Northern Territories with Russia. Again, what has that got to do with global symmetry? But in the 1990s, 
the G7 statements are constantly referred to the dispute and supported Japan's position in the dispute. Uh, so Japan has got a mix of um, you know multilateral motivation uh, mixed in there with uh, pure national interest as well. Now I said there was a difference between the G7 and the G20 in Japanese eyes. I think when the G20 was created in 2008, the Japanese reaction was slightly ambivalent towards the creation of the G20 because the important role of Japan in the G7, which I've not mentioned, as the only Asian representative, so it's the only Asian country within a G7, that was threatened by the creation of the G20. So with the G20, you've got China included, China has now hosted a G20 summit. You've got South Korea. South Korea was the first Asian country to host a G20 summit. Uh, you've got Indonesia as well. And you could expand it further and say you've got India and you've got Australia as other Asian countries involved in the G20. So Japan no longer has this privileged role as a representative of Asia within the G20. So I think it approached the G20 as you know, possibly a more legitimate forum but at the same time, Japan was wanting to preserve the G7 as a more elite forum, if you like, within the G7. Sorry, within an expanded G20. Um, now, I think what we're seeing now is Japan's attitude starting to change slightly towards the G20. Um, and that's partly uh, the result of the decision that Japan is going to host its first G20 in Osaka next year. Um, Japan had bid to try and secure the role of host of the G20 a number of times previously, but had lost out to uh, um, other countries, most notably China. So Japan now has the role of G20 host at an important time. I think it's going to be interesting to see how much uh, time and effort the Japanese government invest in next year's G20 to ensure that it is a success. My question would be, looking through all the newspaper articles online, I believe from what I've gotten from the last G7 in uh, Canada, um, Quebec, I haven't seen Japan too much being mentioned, as well as mm. looking at the J uh, Japan Times. There weren't many articles about it. Mm. I agree with that too. I haven't really seen them being mentioned that much. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this summit, um, you know, possibly not one of the... Um, most high-profile summits for Japan. Uh, you know, I think partly Japan was caught in a difficult position um, with Trump behaving in the way in which he was behaving, because obviously Abe is pursued a policy of getting as close to Trump as he possibly can. Um, and now, you know, there he is with the European and Canadian hosts um, in a standoff with Trump. Where did Japan position itself? Is it going to try and be a bridge between the two, and that's the kind of role it has played previously within G7, G8 summits. Um, but I think this summit, it was largely sort of uh, overshadowed by the tariff issue, Trump's behaviour, and also Trump's, quite frankly, ridiculous suggestion that Russia be readmitted to an expanded G8, which was a total you know, waste of time. Um, and the media jumped on this. I mean, Japan has got an interest in this because... Japan was the one country in the 1990s that said that you should not allow Russia into a G8 because Russia does not subscribe to the same international norms that the G7 do. That will then lead to the loosening or the dilution of the principles that underlie the G7. And guess what? 
Japan was right ultimately. So, you know, I, mean, I, I, I was slightly surprised to see that Japan wasn't making more of a statement here. But then again, you know, Abe is in a difficult position because Abe has been trying to woo Russia at the same time. I think Abe has now met Putin 20 times, 20 plus times, more than any other leader. So, you know, Japan is not going to want to isolate Russia too much. Um, so I think, yeah, Abe, Abe found himself in a difficult position um, and possibly the voice was lost, the independent voice of Japan was lost in this process. So with what kind of goals did Japan go to this G7 summit in the first place? I remember it's often been said in the past that uh, Japan's gone to the G7 with the goal of just getting through it. <laughs> um, and you could sort of say there was partly that going on here, especially because the original agenda was thrown off course. Now, the original agenda that the Canadian host stressed was very focused on gender. Um, and, you know, you could make an argument that Abe, with Abenomics and Womenomics and, you know, the important role, the empowerment of women, at least publicly, at least in terms of rhetoric, um, that has an important role for, for the Abe administration. So there was a clear opportunity for Abe to tap into the themes of the G7 summit. Um, but I think one of the main goals for Abe was obviously it wasn't necessarily Quebec that he was looking at. It was Singapore he was looking at because mm. Donald Trump left to go straight to Singapore and Abe had the opportunity to try and petition Trump to ensure that the abduction issue was included in his negotiations with Kim there because I mean, Abe has been largely sort of frozen out of this process. Um, you know, it seems to be South Korea, North Korea on the one hand or North Korea and America on the other hand. Um, and Abe is sort of trying to catch up a little bit here. Uh, and his, his avenue into the discussions was really uh, Trump. Um, so I think, you know, they were the main objectives for Japan at the summit. The issue of North Korea, I think, is a very, it's a major agenda for Japan. So how was that played out in the summit? Um, well, I think um, most of the discussions took place in the bilateral meetings that took place on the edge of the summit. So it's not just about what goes on within the multilateral meetings, it's the numerous bilateral meetings that take place before, during and after the summit. Uh, and I think the meeting that took place between uh, Abe and Trump just before the summit uh, and after that they headed to Quebec um, was the opportunity for Abe to try and petition Trump and ensure that Japan's voice was included uh, within Trump's discussions in Singapore. Uh, so, yeah, I think that, that, was, that was the sort of the main objective. I would jump back now, but my question would be um, toward that gender topic. Mm. So the theme of advancing gender equality and women's empowerment stretched throughout the whole conference. Sure. Um, but Japan ranks 114th on gender equality, 114th as well on the economic participation of women, and 123rd in political environment which actually empowers women, making the country where women are the least likely to be thriving. How can Japan go through such summit by trying just to get through it, if it actually has the responsibility to improve these numbers? Mm. No, absolutely. I think that's a role that the summit can play in encouraging uh, the Japanese government to pursue this agenda seriously. You know, if you're going to be getting a leader like Justin Trudeau, who's setting very high standards for fellow summit leaders to, to pursue, 
then that's going to place a considerable amount of pressure on Japan to improve its situation. Um, now, the unfortunate thing at the summit was that that narrative, the story that the Canadians were trying to create around gender uh, and women's empowerment and um, the education of girls, was largely sidelined. You know, what we had come out of the summit was almost $4 billion committed to the education of girls in conflict areas in poor countries, um, which is a considerable commitment. And this is new money. This is um, countries of the world minus America coming together to pursue a particular agenda. And this is where the G7, G8 often works really well in terms of a global fundraiser for an initiative like this. Now, that largely got ignored because everybody was talking about Trump tariffs and Russia, which were not on the agenda for, for this summit. Um, but yeah, Japan will find itself in a position where it's going to be held to account by other summit leaders. And that's another role that the G7 can play. You know, Abe has to go back to the summit the following year, face the same leaders, say what Japan has done in the intervening time. There are a number of organisations and mechanisms out there that are measuring these commitments to see whether G7 leaders are actually being held accountable. Civil society groups, think tanks and so on, do a lot of work to try and hold governments accountable to the commitments they make at these summits. So, yeah, it's going to be difficult for any leader who doesn't live up to the standards that the G7 is trying to set for itself to justify their position. Um, but it shows how this mechanism can hopefully encourage everybody to move forward together. Mm -hmm. And then looking forward now with Japan rather being tentative about the idea that there's going to be a G2 perhaps between the US and China. How would Japan's perspective on that be? How would it um, react to such decision if the G2 would actually happen in the future? I mean, a G2 is not going to happen, let's face it. Uh, it may be happening informally or it may be happening behind the scenes, but, you know, we're never going to have a G2 in reality. Um, I mean, I think for Japan, as I say, the challenge is going to be uh, surrounding next year's Osaka G20. Um, Japan is going to want to ensure that it is a successful summit. Um, if you look at the history of Japan hosting G7, G8 summits, it's always tried to go out and ensure that the summit is a success that it has some tangible outcome. Uh, other countries haven't really engaged with the summit process as uh, enthusiastically, shall we say, as Japan has. Some countries have been quite happy to host an unsuccessful summit. Um, Japan regards it as a sort of matter of pride uh, to ensure that it is successful. So I think all eyes will be on Osaka for next year and Japan will want to ensure that the group hangs together um, Whether it's a G7 or whether it's a G20, I think Japan is going to start to be more enthusiastic about both rather than privileging a G7. Then thank you very much, Professor Dobson, for joining us at Bento Bureau. Uh, we're looking forward to bring this to our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. And if you would like to listen more to our episodes, you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, as well as Instagram, YouTube. We are also there. Or follow us on SoundCloud or any other app you would like to hear us on. And we're looking forward to be back. Thank you very much.